0: Good morning. It is really good to be here. What a special morning. Amazing uh, power of the gospel on visual display. And now we get to look at God's word together. And I'm mindful of the time. Last time I was here, I preached for 50 minutes. I thought that was the last time I was coming here, okay? Um... I, and this is a true story, I emailed Gary that week and said, I'm sorry. Okay, if I was, you know, if I had a guest speaker like that in my church, he'd never be coming back. So I'm (laughs) I'm mindful of the time, and I know that I'm up against a potluck which almost got a standing ovation. So (laughs) but I'm glad to be here and to be able to enter into this series on on the good news. And this week we're talking about the good news and culture. And There's a true story of a ship that was built in the early 1600s, and this is it right here. It was called the Vasa, and it was commissioned by the king of Sweden to be built for him and for the army, and at the time of its building, it was the... It was, it's hard to see it right now with the image. It was like the most sophisticated ship on the seas, okay? This was like the Tesla of ships out there. It was adorned, and you can still see it. The, the carvings that were on it, it had 68 bronze cannons. So this thing was meant to be the ship of the seas, And when it was built, thousands gathered in Stockholm to see this ship launched and set out to sea. And as it went out to sea, something strange happened. Two gusts of wind came and hit the ship, which it's a sailing ship, right? You're thinking that that should be good news. One gust and then another gust. And as everybody's on the embankment watching, they saw that the ship was Pushed over and started leaning and leaning, and all the heavy cannons and everything caused it to sink right in the harbor of Stockholm. 20 minutes out at sea, and it sat in the harbor for centuries till, in the 60s, they brought it up and have built a museum around it. and And to this day, it is used as an example in management, and it's even got a, uh, a little phrase called the Vasa Syndrome for human failure in a project. And there's many reasons why the ship failed, and we're not going to go into those this morning, but it is an example for us of what it's like when you're unprepared. Two gusts of wind shoved it over enough to cause it to sink at sea. And this morning we're thinking about culture. And I don't know where you're at in the world right now, but if you're anywhere close to where I'm at, and I imagine you are because we're, we're very similar, we live in the same area here, you may be feeling like you're just like the Vasa ship. When culture comes and blows up against you, it doesn't take one, it doesn't take even two gusts, and you are pushed over. Maybe you are frustrated by it, Maybe you're angered by it, or maybe, like probably most of us, you're, you're just confused at what is going on in the world around us, especially in our Canadian current cultural context. Carl Truman has written a book called... The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And it's a big book, so I don't recommend reading it because if you don't like history, it's really confusing. It'll be a great doorstop, okay? But he's got another book that's a little bit more accessible, and I actually like the title better. It's, It's titled this, Strange New World. Strange New World. It's a great title because it puts into words what many of us are feeling in the cultural context that we are living in, it feels like a strange new world. And more and more, the Canadians that you are interacting with, even in our region here, which is a little bit of a Bible belt, right? If we're honest, it's a little bit of a Christian enclave. But even in our area here, but definitely in the Canadian landscape, it is a strange new world. And many, many people do not have the dots anymore, to be able to connect the story that we are familiar with, which is the story of the gospel. So up until not too long ago, you could kind of assume, not everybody in Canadian culture, but many people in Canadian culture had some of the dots that if you told enough of the story, they'd be able to make a connection around ideas of like a God that's out there, the idea that maybe there's some sort of moral rails or some sort of, you know, pathway that we need to be on. Maybe there's something like sin in the world where we're, you know, we're bad in some ways. There would be some connections that when you share the gospel with them, they're actually able to kind of tie things together. We are in a strange new world where more and more people cannot put the dots together. Their dots are all over the place. James Smith says this in his book, How Not to Be Secular. He says, Your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers. There doesn't seem to be anything missing in their lives, so you can't just come proclaiming the good news of Jesus who fills their God-shaped hole. They don't have any sense that their secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor. In many ways, they have constructed webs of meaning, that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives, though a lot hinges on that almost. So, many of your neighbors and your coworkers, people who don't know Christ, can't put the dots together on much of what we would think is kind of basic knowledge, and they're not waiting for you to come to tell them a story that's going to give them significance in this world. Now, Is there a missing piece to their worldview? Absolutely. Can the gospel break through the the worldviews that they have constructed? Absolutely. We've seen witness of it this morning. But when we come to them, we must realize that in our culture, people have created meaning through other things. Things like the entertainment that we enjoy, the the lives that we create, the the work that we have— maybe the things that they enjoy, whatever it is, they've created webs of meaning, and so this is the space that we are coming into. This is the landscape that uh, we are now inhabiting and are living on, and it's a strange new world that, in all honesty, is probably just going to keep getting stranger and stranger, and so I don't know how you feel about that. Is that a hopeful start to the message here? I'm not sure how you're feeling about being in Canadian culture, whether or not you like it or don't like it. A couple weeks ago, uh, I, I entered a, a new category, a new stage of life. I'm doing surveys now. You know these online surveys. And so I'm in a new category, the 45 to 50 category, or sometimes up to 60. But I'm also in a new category that my daughter just graduated from nursing school. And so, a couple weeks ago, we went to her graduation, and one of the things, and any nurses here would know this, is one of the things that nurses do is they have a pinning ceremony. I don't know if you've heard about this. A pinning ceremony where they, you, family comes, and you get to watch, and they get this pin. They don't put the pin on, but you, you get a pin, okay? And this means like that you're supposed to remember some things as you go into this field. And this year... They were using the phrase, this is your time. And and maybe if you're a nurse graduate, you know, you've done this before. You're like, that's what we use every year. I don't know if they use this every year, okay? But they said, this is your time. And one of the reasons why they talked about it was because these four years that my daughter and these couple hundred nurses had just gone through were some of the most unique years in the medical field for probably like the last century, you know, going through COVID-19, anybody who's been in the hospitals or in any kind of medical field, you know that it has been a wild ride, and people have left the field, and you know, now nurses going into this job market, they're like, I know I can get a job, that's not a problem, I'm not sure if I want to go into that job field, And so they were trying to encourage these nurses with this pinning ceremony saying, this is your time. You've gone through all this work. You've been prepared to do this thing. We have done everything that we could to pour into you. Now step into this field and do what you've been educated to do. Well, church, this is our time. We can't choose the time that God gives to us. None of us can choose what is going to go on around us and in the world that we are living in. And so this is the time that we have been given. So this morning, with just a little bit of time that we have left, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 2 together. Some very familiar verses to many of us where Peter is calling these believers to be marked by a few things. So this is This is Peter's version of a pinning ceremony to the early believers there and for us who are listening this morning. And he's going to talk about three ways that these believers need to be marked for them to be effective in the world that they were living in. And the first century church was in many ways living with the same stresses that we are living with today where their world was strange and new and different. And here they were coming up now as this new collection of believers, new people called to stand up for Jesus in the context of the Roman world. So, the first way that Peter calls them to be marked is that they are to be marked by God. So, look at chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It says this, burning desire to be accepted. It starts from the time that we are babies, and it keeps going right through life. And even, you know, if you have children, you'll know that sometimes they test you, they, they even disobey you, or they do things, you know, wrong, just to, just to see, do you still love me? Do you still accept me? And we live in a world today where we are constantly given different identities to be able to hang on to and hold on to because all of us are looking in some way to be accepted and and what we have seen over the last few years here um, through COVID and even through you know the changing culture that we are in is that whether you are on the side of uh, you know right conservative end of things or if you are on the other side of liberal, progressive views, whether it's your politics or your lifestyle, at either end of things, both groups and all the splintered subgroups promise for you a freedom. All you have to do is be yourself and come in line with our group and you will experience a new kind of freedom. But on either end, the right end or the left end, there is a cost to it. There is something that you have to do to fit into that group. And, and if you don't do whatever the doctrine is of that group, you discover really quickly that you are on the out of that group. And so there is a, a works-based mentality that comes with the identity that we live in, especially within our North American culture, where we have become tribalized and unique, and there's all kinds of different groupings. This is not new. Peter here, with these believers, if you can see in your scriptures there, he's using he's using Old Testament language. He is speaking to mostly Jewish believers who are in their minds is the word of the old testament and the example of israel and he's trying to get them to think that what they have been given now is the true freedom that comes with christ not the kind of freedom that they were promised as israelites and as jewish people in the book of psalms in psalm 106 the whole psalm, if you, I mean, if you have time this week, I'd encourage you to read it. The whole psalm is kind of a description of the nation of Israel and their journey of freedom out of Egypt. And what is God promising as they come out of Egypt? God is promising them freedom. He's saying, you are a people in bondage and in slavery, and now I'm going to bring you out, I'm going to bring you to the promised land, into a land of freedom. Would you take that? You're living in slavery and bondage. And God comes to you through his prophet Moses and says, I'm, I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to give you this freedom. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. Well, in Psalm 106, we see that the children of Israel, and we know the story, many of us do, they fight it at every corner. Constantly, at, as God is providing for them, they are looking for acceptance in all the wrong places which is what the sin nature brings. So in Psalm 106, verses 34 through 36, it says this, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. So as they're to enter the promised land, God said, destroy the peoples as this is a place for you to be. But what does it say in verse 35? But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them the children of Israel, when the opportunity was there to enter into total freedom, where God would rule over them, where God all along the path would provide for them and would clear the way. Now, what do they do? They choose to be drawn into acceptance by the practices and the idols of the nations that were there. But the gospel, as you've been studying here as a church for the last number of weeks, the gospel is totally different. And this is why it's the good news. The gospel is totally different. The gospel says all of us have fallen short. In Romans, it says that all of us have fallen short. And none of us, through any of the actions that we do, the things that we think are so good that would make our mom proud of us, The things that we think that when we do them, God is just beaming, He's just smiling, none of those things make us right with God. We are so distant from Him. But the gospel is this that Jesus has come. Jesus has come and lived a perfect life and, in our place, died on the cross so that now we, as sinful men and women, can put our trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. And we then enter into total freedom in Christ. Have you experienced that before? Have you experienced true freedom before? Most of us haven't. Most of us only experience it for a little, little moment. Because we, we're like the children of Israel. We just long to be accepted by people. We long to do the things so that we will just kind of fit in. And Peter is telling these believers, he's saying, listen, I know it's hard. I know you're in a crooked generation. You're in this Roman world that is totally messed up and you're viewed as this cultic kind of people, but you are a royal priesthood. You are marked by God. So he says, remember this, you are marked by God. But secondly, you are marked by God purpose. Verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So I don't know if you've ever gone on a, on a missions trip before. Maybe you've experienced um, going with a team and, and working in maybe an international country, I've done this number of times where you go over and you do some work, and you kind of you put up with things that are difficult and awkward because you know what do you know? You know that in like a few days or in a week you're back on the plane, you're heading home. So you put up with food that's a little bit different. You put up with like being in situations that you you don't know all the details of it, but always in the back of your mind you're thinking. I'm not from here, so I can handle this for a few days. Peter is saying, believers, Christians, in the first century and in 2023, you must have clarity in your mind that you are marked by God for another world, for a world that is ruled totally by Christ. So when we are living here, we must keep in our minds, fresh in our minds, we're not from here. We're not of this world. So when things seem strange to us, when we're living in a a strange new world, it shouldn't shock us. It should at times grieve us, maybe more even than we would admit. It should grieve us, but it shouldn't shock us because we are exiles. We are from another land, which means we make different choices, we choose to do different things with our finances, with our time, with our skills. We just choose a different life path that will look strange to people that are only living here in this world. Three years ago, we started Citizens Church, which was a church plant, and and we uh, had a number of people from Woodside who came with us, and one of the couples that came with us was in their early 60s. And so my wife and I, we met with them and we talked about the vision of the church and we said, hey, this is kind of our plans. This is what we're doing. And they sat in our living room on the couch across from us and they said, hey, we, we get this. We love the vision. It's wonderful. Uh, we want to be a part of this. But they said, here's why we want to be a part of this. We're in our early 60s and we know that we're the next ones that are going to be wheeled in in a wheelchair or we're going to be walking in in a walker or we're going to be laying down in the casket. We're the next that's that's coming around the bend for us and so they said what we want to do in this next season of life is pour into the work of God. This is what it means to be an exile in this world. When Canadian culture says, you've done your time, you've done all you need to do, cash it in, just enjoy life. As believers, we reorientate our thinking. And we remember, we are exiles, we are sojourners here. We only get 40, 60, 80. Maybe there'll be a few in here that you'll make it to 100. But our time is limited And so we live our years for the Lord and what he's doing. So we are marked by purpose. And lastly, we are marked by goodness. Verse 12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there is a bit of a sequence here where The identity that we have, I think, is is the primary point of origin here. When we know that we are in Christ, we are fully accepted by Him, that we are secure in God's hands, then we're able to live as exiles in the land and make different choices and we're also able then to be a blessing to the people around us who are Christians or who are not Christians it makes no difference to us because our identity is firstly in Christ Rodney Stark in his book The Rise of Christianity he he takes a sweeping view of the the increase of the Christian population in the Roman world and so he says how was it that Christians from, you know, in Acts 1 and 2, there are around 120 believers we have there. By about 350 AD, Rodney Stark estimates that Christians were around 30 to 35 million people in the Roman Empire, over 50 percent of the Roman Empire. And he's asking the question, how did this happen in 300 years? Such a massive expansion over the greatest empire ever so far to exist or across cultures across languages and his primary answer now he's not a christian so he doesn't you know he's not going to say that it's the the power of the gospel we know that that is actually the answer but he says one of the primary reasons was the good works of believers towards their neighbors and in three primary ways Firstly, that they were valuing and kind to those who were unwanted, especially children. So as the Romans, you know, if they were born like a, a baby girl and they were like, I don't want a baby girl. I wanted a baby boy. Here's what they would do. Lay it out on a trash heap. Let it die or maybe the animals will eat it or maybe someone will come along and scoop it. Who knows? Christians would come and take these children and would take care of them. Also, they cared for those who were sick and as multiple plagues and pandemics rolled through the Roman Empire in the first 300 years Christians were there caring for their neighbors loving them and helping the sick to to heal and then lastly they also loved and accepted in slaves and women who were basically in the same category and they said God has created and has value for all people And so their good actions, their good works actually wooed people into the faith. And so church, let me ask you, in what ways are your neighbors, your coworkers, those who don't know Christ, seeing the goodness of God through your hands? The reason that we do it, the reason that we do good works is is not so that we can just tell the stories here, which they are great to tell. The reason that we do good works is because God is constantly on the, the move in this world. God is constantly doing good works. This, just a couple weeks ago, I watched uh, a video of a CEO, Tim Cook, he's the CEO of Apple Computer. The, I think it's valued as the, the largest company on the planet. And it was five ways that Tim Cook is inspired in the world, okay? So he talked about sports, and he talked about, you know, the people that buy his products and all this stuff. But one of the things that he said that inspires him is the national parks in the USA. Going out to see the beauty of nature and going to hike. And here's what he said. Listen to what he said. For a moment, you feel so small, Your place in the world seems so small and it sets a great perspective. Now for Tim Cook, this is just a moment of inspiration. But for us as believers, we know actually what is happening here. What this non-Christian is experiencing is the grace and the goodness of God. The Psalms puts it this way, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Tim Cook is experiencing the grace and the goodness of God. Now listen, our temptation as people, as sinful people, is to turn and do it not the way that God does it. We tend to think that people should earn the good things that come their way. If you agree with me, if you're doing what I perceive as good for my town or for my society, then possibly I'll do good to you. The example that we are called to follow is to be good to others because God is good to us. That is why we are good to others. God has poured grace out to us, and he's still pouring it out to us. The other day I was out for a run, struggling as I normally do on all my runs, and I was on the path to the west of Elmira, and I looked over and I I saw the fields, and I was looking north towards Floridale, and um, I just, I stopped and I looked and I said, man, Lord, this is so beautiful. This region that we live in is such a gift to live here. And I thought, as this Tim Cook analogy was was in my mind, I thought, God, you're good not just because you love Tim Cook, but you're good, God, because you love a sinner like me. You're gracious to me. You've given me another day to experience your, your love and your goodness. And Peter is calling these believers. He's reminding them. He says, if you want to live in this world, This world that is is crooked. it's This strange new world. Don't be frightened. Don't be scared to live in that world. This is your time. Wallenstein, this is your time. You are here. The gospel is powerful, amen? We saw it on display. The gospel is powerful. So let me encourage you today. Be a people that is marked by God. Be a people that is marked by your, your goodness to others, to those who, who you think don't deserve it. Remind yourself that you don't deserve it either, but the grace of God has come to you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gospel, the gospel that is the power of God to salvation that changes lives. And Lord, may we live through our Uh, broken and feeble ways uh, trusting in you putting our hope and our confidence in you and being the light of Christ to our neighbors and to those who we interact with to the glory of Jesus Christ in his name we pray